Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is That Lonesome, Restless Feeling by B. Morris Allen. B. Morris Allen is a biochemist turned activist, turned lawyer, turned foreign aid consultant, and frequently wonders whether it's time for a new career. He's been traveling since birth and has lived on five of seven continents. When he can, he makes his home on the Oregon coast. In between journeys, he edits Metaphoricist magazine and works on his own speculative stories of love and disaster. His dark fantasy novel, Susurus, came out in 2017. Find him online at bmorrisallen.com. That's B-M-O-R-R-I-S-A-L-L-E-N.com or on Twitter at B. Morris Allen. Let's jump in. Outside the house, a placard swung slightly in the twilight breeze. To and fro, to and fro, never making any progress as it moved in complex helices at hundreds of meters per second through the solar system, or hundreds of kilometers per second through the galaxy. Motion was a matter of perspective. The house had never moved. It stood where it always had, where it had stood throughout their marriage. It would never move until the great Northwest earthquake finally came and flung it toward the Pacific. Then, at last, the closets would open, the drawers would break, and there would be chaos until the tsunami came and washed it all clean. It had always been clean, of course, always spotless, always ordered, always neat until she returned from a trip with her dusty luggage, her tacky gifts, her long-winded stories. Madhup had cleaned them up, labeled them, put them away for future use. Madhup had always known where they were, what they were for, when they'd last been touched. And she, Bettina, had relied on that, let her own memory atrophy. She'd wiped it clean with every arrival, left it empty to be filled again, on her next trip out to Centauri, or Aldebaran, or some unnamed new system with unnamed new planets. She'd left her memories here, in this dark house, on the gray Oregon coast, stored away with bookends and croquet sets and nameless artifacts. Madhup had stored them, kept them, known that without them, Bettina was not Bettina, was not the galactic traveler, the intrepid explorer, the fated hero. Without you, I'm nothing, she whispered to the gloom of the hallway. It was hardly a room at all, just a wide space where real rooms came together. The stairs to the dormitory, seldom used, the doors to the laundry, the guest bath, the library, the guest room. Grand names for empty spaces. And this plain hallway, with its entries and exits and its shallow linen closet, hardly a room at all and yet it had a ghost. You always were thorough, Madhup. After the funeral, when she'd unpacked, when she'd had time to look around, when she'd looked for something to fill her time, she'd found the folder, neatly labeled, in the middle of the library desk. Doctors, crematoria, wills, accounts, utilities, passwords. Everything was there. Everything but Madhup. For that, there were the ghosts. She hadn't seen them at first. She'd stared down at the folder, 
watching it blur and blur until the ocean broke her walls and spilled out all over the neat printed label, turning after death into confusing smudgy mess of ink and paper. She'd cried and cried, curled into a corner of the tiny library, face pressed into the books until she realized she was pushing them out of line, and then turned the other way and cried some more. When at last the sea was empty, her heart wrung tight until it hurt. She let it go, let it curl like a wounded animal in the cage of her chest, wanting and fearing to be free. That was when she'd seen the ghost. It wasn't ghostly, it was Madhub, solid, stolid, serious. Working with her files, with a soft screen hung from the windowsill, a keyboard at her fingertips. Spreadsheets, documents, investments, dull things, important things. She didn't moan or shake or turn to mist. She didn't look up, not even when Bettina scrambled to her feet, launched herself bodily at her wife, scrabbling, grabbing, gabbling. You're not... You're here. You're alive. But of course she wasn't. She was a hint of ashes spread across the beach, blown into the surf, eaten by mole crabs or sand hoppers. And yet, she'd sat there, solid, unmovable, typing her figures, scrolling her documents, dutiful and unresponsive. Lost in her own world, as she had liked to say, without even leaving the house. Bettina had sat there for hours, watching, holding, feeling Madhup's dead heartbeat. She'd cajoled, entreated, threatened. She'd tried to take the keyboard, to stop the fingers, but ghosts were stronger than hope, it seemed. They played by their own rules. She'd stayed for days, taking catnaps on the floor, or on the desk itself, half-curled on the corner still available. Frightened at every waking that Madhup would be gone again and she'd be alone for real. But always the ghost was there, still typing, still working. It wasn't a loop that she could see, not a creation of the holojector she'd brought back from Tarsus Four as her first big find, the one that had bought them the house, paid off the loans, let Madhup do her research, Bettina her exploring. Ghost Madhup did different things, used different files, but they were old, irrelevant. They said nothing to Bettina. Most of them she barely recognized. It was not until the second day that she noticed, finally looked carefully at the soft screen. At the upper right, a small icon, a little blob of text. The ghost never touched it, never tapped it. But the space was always clear. However, the windows and desktops shifted. That one little icon was never covered. The workspace was still there, of course, still stored on their little server its passcodes carefully spelled out in Madhup's perfect, awful folder. Bettina pulled her glass screens from her pocket, settled them on her nose, logged in. The desktop was bare, clean, save for one little icon. It did nothing when she tapped it, had no hidden information in the properties. At last, she zoomed the screen, and then she got it. It was just an icon, a tiny image of black text on white, a poem Bettina had written for Madhup, back when she'd thought she was an artist. It had been terrible, painful, hackneyed promises of love they'd both laughed about, agreeing that maybe Bettina should stick to exploring and adventure, the things that she was good at. She'd cried a little more then, 
but only a little. There were only so many tears a body could make, so much emotion a soul could take. She'd hugged the ghost again and staggered out to fall asleep on the soft covers of the guest bed, always fresh, never musty, seldom used. When she woke, the ghost was there, a younger ghost, a younger Madhub, a little chubbier, a little less gray, a little less certain. She stood in the doorway, looking in at the bed. She smiled, she shrugged, she flirted, she laughed, all soundless. She looked happy, then troubled, then happy again. And in her eyes, a hunger seemed to burn that made her look lost and brave and vulnerable all at once. Bettina had lain in bed and smiled, waved, basked in this memory of the younger Madhub, had called her over, knowing that the ghost would not respond, could not respond, that these were passive ghosts, for all they moved and acted. And despite entreaties and enticements, ghost Madhub never left the doorway only glancing away from time to time when the troubled looks came across her brow. After a while, Bettina had gotten up, stood next to the ghost, hugged it. It felt warm, comforting. It was just like the real Madhub. It was Madhub, it seemed, when she'd been younger. From close up, she could see the lack of gray, the fainter wrinkles. Five years ago, maybe seven, Bettina had been gone a lot then. She'd been exploring around Rigel, had always been on the point of the next big find, in promising ruins that turned out to be natural crystal formations, or in deep caverns that held nothing but ice. She'd barely been home at all, for about two years. They'd talked via long videos back and forth through courier pods. Madhub had never complained, never said how lonely she was, though Bettina had seen it in her eyes. She'd realized then, standing next to the ghost, what she should have seen at first. It wasn't Bettina the ghost was looking at. Why would it be? Lying in the guest bed. She'd never slept there until today. It was a guest, of course. A guest who'd flirted, cajoled, entreated. A madhub who'd laughed and giggled and felt guilty. Bettina had been angry then, confused. She hadn't known. Couldn't remember who'd visited then, or whether anyone had. That was Madhub's department. All the social arrangements, the friends, the schedules. Bettina's job was to find things, Madhub's in part to put them in their places. She'd been alone, for years at a time sometimes. But you never complained. And why should she have? That was the way things were. The rules laid out by Bettina. The active one. The famous one. The one who got her way. She sat on the bed, got up again, feeling the invisible, intangible presence of the other ghost, the one Ghost Madhub was winking at. Why this? Why show me this? Why say this? For there was no doubt Madhub had done this, had selected these memories, had arranged her own haunting somehow. Bettina turned to leave, to go, somewhere to think. And yet, as she came to the door, to the sly, leering, potentially unfaithful Madhub, she paused. For this was Madhub too. This was her, and what she'd done, and what she'd felt. It was honest, as Madhub had always been honest. Even after death, 
when her ghost itself was an illusion, she was honest. The ghost was always in the doorway, just on the threshold. It never came inside, never sat and smiled a sultry smile, never ran a gentle hand along the leg that wasn't there. It burned with passion, but it burned alone. That was the message, she supposed, and it was true. She'd left Madhup alone and trusted her. She, out among the stars, with a ship and its robots as companions, had been focused on her work. It had never occurred to her that Madhup, alone among temptations, might feel lonely. Not in a real way. They'd talked about it, joked about it, but it had never really sunk beneath the surface of her mind. Yet it had happened, and Madhup had acted on it. Or she had not. Either way, Bettina had contributed. And either way, it didn't really matter. What mattered was that there had been more to Madhup than she'd known. More than she had ever thought to explore. She'd stumbled out to the kitchen, hungry and confused, and hurt by her own actions and inaction. There was food, of course. Tidily labeled containers of frozen food she'd cooked herself, and that Madhup had divided and packaged and put away. It had always surprised people that Bettina was the one who cooked. I thought you were the this type or that type, they like to say. People like to label things. Like Madhup, she admitted. Madhup had liked to label things, to organize them, to put them into boxes. Her ghost sat now, on her little stool beside the pantry, where she'd always sat while Bettina cooked, marking pen in hand, wet wipe in the other. As Bettina's meal defrosted, ghost Madhub labeled and packed, sorted and cleaned. She wrote new labels on in her terrible handwriting, wiped off old ones with her little cloth, so that smudges of ink always got on her fingers and they looked like she'd contracted some dread disease. Something you brought back from Zubin el Janubi, she always said, because she liked the name so much, couldn't believe it was a real star. A deadly alien virus from one of your gadgets. Because the gadgets weren't always obvious. They usually weren't. There were only a few that Bettina had immediately understood, had seen the use of once she'd, via robot, pushed all the buttons, pulled all the levers. Most of them she brought home to Madhup, to classify and to test and send to experts. That was where most of the money came from. The little day-to-day sums that paid for the food, the utilities, the fuel for Bettina's ship, the lawyers to make sure the rights were locked down. She'd have to manage that on her own now, or hire someone to do it. There would be names in Madhup's folder, a plan, step-by-step directions. She ate in the kitchen, from an immaculate little bowl, a bean-curd lasagna that she'd made weeks ago, before another trip, before she'd known about the cancer. She watched ghost Madhup label spices and cereals, Little plastic containers of frozen goulash. Big bags of alien gym crack. For a while, she sat against her dead lover's knees, telling her all the stories again. I found that one in a city of broken crystal spheres. I cut my suit open, but I got a patch on in time. The city was all smashed into shards and powder, but it was beautiful. With a light from a blue sun refracting through the bits and throwing rainbows everywhere. That one was from a little satellite out in the middle of nowhere. It's incredible I found it. There was no system there at all. Just a ring of dust with a radius of about 10 AUs. 
The satellite was right in the middle, right where a star should have been. Not really a satellite so much as a three-dimensional metal frame, really. I felt bad about taking it after. Maybe it was just a monument or a piece of art. This one was from the same sector where I found the holojector, about 32 light years away. I thought at first it was the same folks. See how it has the same sort of filigreed cylinder look? But I could never figure out how it worked. So maybe it was someone else's. Oh, that one. You remember that one. You got it working. The molecular needle, you called it, because it makes stitches so small and out of anything. You said it pays the property tax. This one. She talked and talked and ate again when the ghost moved back to foods and rolls of tape and carefully sorted cables. It looked happy, or at least content. Had it sat there? Had Madhup sat there when Bettina was at home? Had she done familiar things to pretend Bettina was there? Or had she had some other life, with different habits, different places? Whichever this was a memory of, it wasn't unhappy, and that was enough. She slept that night in the master bedroom, with its French doors open to the sound of waves and the fog floating in through the screen. She curled around the warm, solid figure of Madhup's ghost in its camisole and garish, ludicrous pajama pants. It felt alive. Its heart beat. Its lungs breathed. It fidgeted. Mostly, though, it slept. And it snuggled. Sometimes in the back, curled up to face Bettina, so that she could lie facing its closed eyes and slightly smiling face, ghostly in the moonlight, or push herself back against it and imagine that its other arm wound around her, crossed between her breasts so that she could kiss it as she slept. Mostly it lay the other way, and Bettina curled around its question mark shape, spooned like Big Dipper and small. Always with the astronomy, Madhup had complained, but she'd come out to lay on the beach with Bettina anyway, to look where she pointed into ooh and ah about invisibly distant stars she would never visit. I'm happy where I am, she'd said. She'd visited Bettina's ship, the Lightfoot, one time. It's so cramped, she'd said. And so plain. As if a scout ship had room or mass for decorations and luxury. I need my beach and my eagles and my garden and my deer. I need seals, nasturtiums, whales, blue jays, crows, garlic, sand, surf, blackberries, rain, all of which were right here, outside the house and sometimes in it. She fell asleep with her face deep in ghost hair, her hand tight against the soft ghost belly. It was still there when she woke. She ate pancakes with the cataloging ghost, shaking pancake mix from a labeled container dropping in frozen huckleberries from the garden. She didn't tell any stories as alien artifacts passed through dead hands, only watched as they were slid into padded containers and labeled with scrawled but detailed notes, due to be replaced later with machine-printed ones that a person could actually read. When the ghost started packing fresh blueberries into plastic containers, she kissed it on the head and went to wash. The bathroom was a horror. In the tub chest deep in steaming water, a wasted ghost shivered as it wiped loose gray hairs from its mottled scalp and set them apologetically on the rim. It smiled, a horrific rictus of thin lips and skin, and held its bony hand out for help, 
dripping wet. It staggered out two steps to the toilet and retched and retched and retched until the water was pink and the bowl streaked with crimson. Bettina held the ghost Maboop's hair, what was left of it, and wiped its face clean while she cried. It looked at her with a depth of devotion so absolute that she felt her heart begin to tear within her chest. She left before it came completely loose of its stitches. She showered in the guest bath, whose ghost did nothing worse than brush healthy gums and draw little hearts on the steamed-up glass with M plus B inside. She avoided it and left to sit on the master bed. Beside her, a healthy dead woman slumbered and drooled a bit from a slightly open mouth. After half an hour of blankness, her mind empty of coherent thought, she was no further along. With a trepidation that bordered almost on fear, she went back to the bathroom to face her memories. For hours, she bathed the ghost and held its hair and wiped its face and helped it stand and sit in a long and painful cycle with no defined start or end. It washed and dried and vomited and defecated, all with a look of gratitude and love that broke her heart over and over and over until she felt there was nothing left but dust. It was the most painful of memories, brought back from the dead, condensed to relive as often as she could stand. She stood it until evening, alternating bouts of guilt with anger and despair. She left again for dinner, some nameless stew of lentils and vegetables that Madhup herself had made. It was solid, filling, flavorless. She ate it in the living room, where Madhup sat reading and watching birds out the window and feeding the non-existent fire, just as she had in life. When the stew was done, she did the dishes, wiping the marker notes off the plastic stew container with careful hands that trembled as she prepared herself for the bathroom again. That was why she was here. It was clear. That was how she was haunted. How, at last, the ghost followed classic rules of fear and horror and disgust. Disgust with herself for leaving Madhup alone, for failing her. Fear at the future before her, of an endless round comforting an eternally dying ghost. Expiating her guilt for as long as she lived, or worse, as long as she could stand it until she left and built up more guilt, more moral debt. The bathroom ghost smiled its familiar, fragile smile at Bettina's invisible past. She remembered this one, she found. This particular smile, this particular moment, so recent, so painful. They'd come back from a trip to the beach, walking slowly, the wheelchair disdained for this one last excursion. Our last exploration together, Madhup had said. And Bettina had denied it, pretending there would be many more, knowing Madhup would die that night, or the next one. It had been three nights. Three days cooking elaborate purees of this and that when Madhub was sleeping after vomiting up the last one. Three days spent sitting just here, on the edge of the tub, holding her hair and bathing her sunken frame. She started to recall the other smiles, the other gestures, the other looks. She remembered them all, made a puzzle of placing them all in context, and nicely labeled the way Madhub would have liked it. She fell asleep by the side of the tub, holding the ghost's frail hand. The cycle was still going when she woke up. 
This was from the day before Madhub's death, when she was so weak Bettina had to carry her into the toilet in the tub, had had to change the sheets, and all through it, Madhub had smiled and joked. She was making one now, Bettina saw. Let M stand for an unknown, Bettina mouthed with her. No, we need something bigger. We'll use N. It was Madhub's favorite joke, a relic from her days as a mathematician. She'd told it that day just to see Bettina roll her eyes. Bettina remembered doing it. That was the point, she realized. She remembered all these moments. She'd been there. She'd held the hand, wiped the bottom, cleaned the hair from the rim of the tub. That was Madhub's message. Not, I died and it's your fault, because it wasn't. It was cancer's fault. Madhub was saying instead, I died and you were here for me. I died and you took care of me. I died in your arms and I was happy. Don't forget this. Don't block it out. It was important to me and it's important to you. Maybe it was wishful thinking. Maybe Madhub was a classic vindictive ghost. But only if dying made you a different person. She chuckled through the tears. That was a joke Madhub would have liked. Only if dying makes you a different person, she said. And the ghost held out her hand for help getting up. The next morning, she woke early. She had breakfast with a silent ghost, then went upstairs to the dormitory. As she had expected, it was full of Madhub. Madhub rolling around, racing, turning somersaults among the beds. Madhub playing with the nieces and nephews, with borrowed dogs and cats to which Bettina was allergic. The ghost laughed its silent, exuberant laugh, played peekaboo with babies, board games with youngsters, sat silent and comforting with teenagers, napped on the sunlit floor with cats on her legs and dog heads on her chest. And now the hallway, at the base of those tall steps, with the irregular one painted orange at the confluence of doors and travel. And here, in the shadowed gloom, was one more ghost. Madhup in middle age, in the comfortable jeans and cotton blouse that made her look a little dumpy, with her arms out waiting to be hugged. She hugged and was hugged, kissed and was kissed, looked into small brown eyes that looked into hers, remembered and was, perhaps, somewhere, remembered, loved and was loved in precious memory. She'd made the calls this morning, and the agent from Madhub's folder had put up the sign that afternoon. She could just see it from here, through the glass of the front door, swinging aimlessly in its circular, spiral voyage that went nowhere at vast speeds around the galaxy. She knew now what she'd find in the laundry room. No shelves of carefully cataloged mysteries. They would have been packaged up, sold, donated. There would be an intent, happy ghost, doing the work she loved the best, putting together puzzles, solving problems in her little workshop. And on a desk or a workbench would be a little filigreed cylinder that was like her holojector after all, that somehow made memory solid, or made the past solid, or something. A device that Madhub had figured out, a puzzle she had solved, just as she had solved the puzzle of what to do with Bettina's grief, how to hold her wife's hand even after death, 
how to bring her through the grief and guilt and the if-I-only-had moments to give Madhup the credit she deserved. To remember that it had been a partnership, and they had both had what they had wanted most, and had paid a price. It was worth it, Bettina said as she found the cylinder, read the careful directions, and twisted it just so. It was worth every minute. As she put the cylinder back, and a ghost slowly faded out of sight. And though tears rolled down her cheeks, for the first time in weeks, her heart beat free in her chest. She'd walked through the empty house, left the door unlocked behind her. She would go out again, into the night, to lose that lonesome, restless feeling in the space between the stars. She'd go further than she'd ever gone, exploring as she'd always done in her cramped, plain little ship, with only memory for company. That was That Lonesome Restless Feeling by B. Morris Allen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.